You are listening to the New Street X podcast, where we interview people who understand the intersection of physical and digital collectibles. We're entering an exciting world in the collectible space that involves things like sneakers, NFTs, trading cards, fashion, sports, pop culture, and much, much more. And these things are coming together. So we're here to talk to people that understand that, people that are really building the future of collectibles around the world. Thank you so much for listening. Please follow us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the New Street X Podcast. I'm excited to have here today, Bimo Gogamo. He's the co-founder and CEO of Tradeblock. Tradeblock's mission is to give people the power to use their kicks as currency and trade their sneakers with a growing community of passionate sneakerheads. Over tens of thousands of members use Tradeblock each month to explore new inventory and collections, find their grails, and negotiate offers. Bimo, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Really appreciate you being here. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, maybe we could just kick off with like the founding story of Tradeblock. Like, how did... How did this, how did it come about? Clearly, you probably had a passion for sneakers, presumably before then. What were you doing before? And what was the inspiration? How did this all come together? Yeah, so I think um, you know the beginning of the story goes all the way back to, to junior high um, when I met my co-founder Darren. So I've actually known both my co-founders um, since I was pretty young. You know, we grew up in the same area, played sports together. Uh, Darren and I hooped together. Tony and I were in track together in high school. Um, so you know. Really, the the genesis of the idea um, was when we were all working kind of, you know, very low paying um, retail jobs in the mall. So I was working at Foot or at uh, Finish Line. The two of them were at Foot Locker. And Tony was also a big like fantasy sports fanatic. Um, so, you know, he was playing around with this widget, I guess you could call it the ESPN trade machine still exists today if you're curious and want to check it out. But Basically, ESPN built this experience where you could pick a sports franchise and you could, you know, compose hypothetical trades and then it would spit out kind of an analysis of, is this a good trade? Is it likely to go through or not? Why or why not? Et cetera. So, you know, one day he was just playing around with that and kind of was like, man, it'd be really cool if somebody, you know, built something like this, but that, you know, enabled people to trade sneakers with one another in real life. Um, this is 2009, 2010. So it's also kind of early emergence of the secondary market and the resale market. So, you know, it was already starting to get a little bit more difficult to get your hands on a hot release. Like, you know, I remember when the cool gray 11s came out, that was just, you know, insanity in the mall. Um, so yeah, but at the time, you know, we were 17, 18, I was getting ready to go hoop in college. So it was one of those things where it's like, that's a cool idea, but you know, none of us were like, oh, let's actually go try and do that. Then fast forward 10 years later to 2019, you know, we had all um, basically spent some time in the professional world, you know, built some skill sets um, and just gotten a better understanding of business more broadly. And I think, you know, we're also just sort of restless. Like we all had good jobs, but we're sort of like, hey, we want something that's, you know, probably a combination of both more challenging and more fulfilling. So we looked at the emergence of, you know, companies like StockX and Goat. You know, we looked at eBay's kind of, you know, reinvestment in the secondary sneaker market. We said, okay, clearly there's something happening here right now that is that is major. And none of these companies seem interested in trying to tackle, you know, the problem um, that we saw early on. So really it was just a, hey, let's see if there's a there there. You know, we owe it to ourselves to at least try. 
started hitting, you know, the Chitlin circuit, as Darren likes to call it, where we were just going to every sneaker con we could go to, talking to anybody who would talk to us and really just doing sneaker giveaways to build up a following on Instagram. And then for our MVP, we basically said, all right, let's see if we can get some of our Instagram followers to allow us to facilitate a trade. So, you know, we said, all right, let's do a giveaway. But the entry rules for this giveaway will be send us three shoes that you own that you would be willing to trade. And I think there was about 300 or so people who, you know, sent in that information, um, followed up with every one of them manually in the DMs. And we're like, hey, appreciate you doing this. Um, out of curiosity, are there any shoes that you're looking for? You know, so if we can find a trade partner, you know, we can facilitate this. And I think probably about 80% of them, you know, sent us a, a short wish list. And that was, you know, the beginning of the, of the trade block database. So we dumped all that, you know, data into a spreadsheet in Excel. We started doing, you know, cross-reference lookups. And lo and behold, there was a couple of matches from day one. So it took a little bit of work to, you know, find a compelling trade. And, you know, people who were like down to trust us as, you know, guinea pigs, if you will, um, for the process. But um, eventually we got a guy who was also kind of like a micro-influencer who we had met and kind of befriended at a couple events, got him to agree to a crazy blockbuster trade was a pair of, he actually had two pairs of MCA Air Force Ones. So sneakerheads will know what I'm talking about. If you're not a sneakerhead, basically this is like a $2,000, you know, Air Force One. And he wanted a pair of the off-white Chicago Ones. So that's, you know, the Virgil Abloh off-white collaboration. You know, even at the time, those were going for 3000 Um, But he was like, hey, if you can find me a lightly used pair. He had a pair that was brand new, but he was like, I can't in good conscience wear this shoe because of how expensive it is. So if you can find me a gently used one that I can actually wear, I would happily trade away this, this extra pair of MCAs that I got. So got that trade done for him. He posted it to his page. And yeah, I mean, it, it just kind of went crazy from there. One of the big things that we recognized was, you know, when we looked at the existing marketplaces, we realized like all of their supply was coming from active resellers. But for every one person who is, you know, reselling at volume, we're like, oh man, there's 10 collectors over here who are still sitting on a bunch of really valuable, interesting sneakers, many of which have never been worn or have been worn once or twice. And they're just sitting on a shelf in the closet. So really, you know, our primary objective became, hey, let's unlock dormant inventory that's owned by collectors who aren't looking to sell. And that, you know, gives us a, a unique way of attacking the market um, on top of just having a unique experience where, you know, you said it in the intro, using your kicks as currency. I was one of the kids who grew up in a household where, you know, we had everything we needed, but probably very little of what we wanted. <laughs> and I remember, you know, wanting a pair of Jordans or even just wanting a pair of Kobe's or something like that. And it was like, what's the price tag? Yeah, non-starter. So, you know, I would do my my sneaker shopping at Marshall's or JCPenney and sneakerheads out there. No, you can find you can find some great stuff on the clearance racks if you're if you're there constantly, you know, checking in for the resupplies. So, you know, I think another part of it for me was just like, man, there's so many people who are really passionate about sneakers, but especially since the secondary market is ramped up, just the availability. So even being able to buy at retail, but then obviously if you can't get the shoe at retail, the prices in the secondary market can be really kind of price prohibitive. So we said, hey, here's a way of enabling people who are just passionate about shoes to get their hands on those sneakers that they, you know, 
otherwise would have been totally out of reach for them by, you know, using their existing Texas currency. So, you know, you see people who will get a thousand dollar grail and say things like, I never thought I would touch this shoe. Like I thought there was no chance because it had just, you know, rocketed beyond what was reasonable for me. But then when I was given the ability to pull a couple shoes off the shelf and trade for it, you know, it totally changed the game. And now I've, you know, secured three, four, five of my grills over the last couple of months. So those are the stories I love to hear as, you know, someone who used to be that kid who, who didn't have the means, but still wanted to participate. Got it. So let, let me just kind of walk through, like, if I was to download TradeBlock right now, let's say I have like a decent collection, maybe don't have all the hottest hype grails. And I see someone, maybe it's like another user has listed, okay, here's like a thousand dollar grail. And then maybe I think to myself, okay, if I put together like four shoes from like my collection, then add like some cash or whatever, then I can propose like, that's like a trade. And that value can be like, I guess, accepted by the seller or or not. Is that is that like the kind of process? Maybe there's like a negotiation too. But generally speaking, it's like adding beyond just being like an auction house, you know, like you add another layer of like, possibility in terms of how someone facilitates like, kind of like an OTC trade in a way. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's a pretty good summary. So you can include up to three shoes on either side of the offer, but you can also add cash, as you mentioned. So really, there's a couple different ways you can go about it. One, all of the, you know, closet and wish list data is indexed. So if you're just like, hey, I'm looking for someone who has shoe X, you can look up the shoe and basically pull up a list of here is every collector who has that shoe in their closet, prioritized by the ones that we think are going to be better trade partners with you, you know, where we're seeing some synergy between your closets and wish lists. And so, you know, you can approach each collector individually and say, you know, you are someone who has a shoe that I want. I can go look into your closet, say, yeah, I want that shoe. Maybe something else catches my eye. So I'm like, hey, actually, let me see if I can trade for both of these. And I can send you a direct offer again with up to three shoes and also added cash to try to balance out any you know perceived delta in market value. The other way you can go about it is what's called a public offer, which is basically just defining the terms of the trade you'd like to do. Um, but then you post it publicly for everybody in the community to be able to see. So, you know, especially if the shoe you're targeting is something that has a pretty decent supply and there's, you know, a thousand people who own it. Oftentimes you'll have more luck just sort of saying, you know, I've got this Jordan 1, I want this Jordan 4, but I kind of don't care who I'm trading with, um, you know, so long as it's, you know, brand new in dead stock condition. Um, so you post it publicly and then all thousand of the people with the shoe you know, can now view that offer and accept it. And with both public and private offers, you have the ability to counter. So, you know, if I send you an offer and you're like, it's kind of interesting, but not quite compelling enough, you can bounce it back to me and, you know, say, hey, I don't want the shoes you're offering. I want these other shoes you own, or I like the shoes you're offering, but I need you to increase the additional cash on top. And you can do that with a public offer as well. And just sort of say, hey, I saw your public offer. Here's a counter to that. And then that basically opens up a private negotiation. Got it. This and this makes sense in terms of like why someone would want to use it versus like some of the other sneaker marketplaces out there allows more like kind of peer to peer interaction. And are you seeing that, like you mentioned, and I heard like a few different types of audiences, right? Maybe for some folks, they they are able to attain grails that they might not be able to just like afford up front through cash because there's more ways to pay for it. It sounds like there are some, you know, sneakerheads who might have hundreds or dozens or whatever in their collection that is dormant inventory. Are there certain like types of like users that you think are most likely to be on TradeBlock that would not be going to a StockX or at least would 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 prioritize TradeBlock versus uh, a typical, let's say, goat 
uh, StockX kind of uh, user? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think we've always viewed our service as like complementary to traditional buying and selling. So from what we've seen, you know, even our top traders, you know, are still pretty regular users of traditional marketplaces as well. I think one thing that's been interesting is we, we built our solution specifically for collectors. You know, we said, hey, the traditional marketplaces, their most important user is the seller. And, you know, I get that, you know, you're a, a sale based marketplace you probably want to prioritize your supply side. But we sort of said, hey, we want to optimize for the collector. But the cool thing was, you know, by doing that, we built a product that resellers also find value in. So, you know, you definitely have your collector who's like, I'm trying to acquire a grail and I don't want to spend the cash to do it. But you also have have a lot of people who basically have realized, hey, there's some really interesting, you know, arbitrage opportunities here where, for example, I think one of the cool things about trading is it allows you to take personal preference into account in a way that buying and selling really doesn't, right? You know, the example I give is like, if I'm purchasing a shoe from you and you're like, I need $350, I'm paying you in cash. There's only one way for me to offer you $350, right? It's $350 in cash. If I'm compensating you in sneakers, there's, you know, in theory, an unlimited amount of sneaker combinations I could put together that would be worth roughly $350. And if I can, you know, offer you two sneakers that you really love, chances are, even if in aggregate, they're only worth $300, you might sort of say like, eh, I don't care about that extra 50 because I'm so passionate about the sneakers you're offering. And oftentimes, you know, I'm not that interested in this sneaker that I got. You know, there's been an interesting dynamic that has kind of emerged with the marketplaces where if you're a collector, you know, we've sort of been conditioned to try to buy almost everything at retail, right? Because we know, one, it's hard to get a win on sneakers. So sort of like, if I can get a win on anything, even if it's a shoe I only kind of like, I'm going to try. But the other part of it is, you know, people recognize that a lot of these exclusive drops are going to hold, you know, meaningful value in the secondary market. So I can know, you know, for example, I'm not a big fan of Yeezys personally. You know, you're not going to find any Yeezys in my collection. But if there is a, you know, easy release or easy drop, especially one that's more exclusive, I'm going to enter the raffle, right? Because if I could pay $130 for a shoe that's immediately worth $250 or $300 in the secondary market, why wouldn't I do that? So I think, you know, a lot of collectors are now ending up with a lot more inventory that is valuable, but that is not really stuff that they personally like. And so I think that's another, you know, basically trend that we've been taking advantage of. Hey, you built up all these shoes that, you know, you kind of hit on a raffle. Maybe you hit on three raffles for the same shoe that you didn't think you were going to have luck on. So you're sitting on stuff that, you know, again, holds value technically, but it may be completely outside of your personal preferences. And I think the beauty of trading is, you know, we help you find the, the people who are like, I love those shoes, which you only kind of like. And I have some shoes that you love that I only kind of like. And so I think it kind of broadens the aperture of what's a fair deal. And honestly, something that I love to see is a lot of times people will post their trades on Twitter or on TikTok or whatever the case may be and solicit feedback. And, you know, invariably, if you're looking purely at market values, there's almost always a winner and a loser, right? Even if it's only $1 difference. But what's really dope is, you know, almost every single time there's a, a, a little bit of an imbalance. The person who technically got the less valuable thing will explain why they don't care, right? 
hey, I had three pairs of these um, and I got it for retail. So I paid $130. I traded it for a shoe that was worth 300 Even if technically I could have sold it for 350 like I don't care. I still came out on top and I got a shoe I really love. So I think, again, just kind of from a personal standpoint, I love that people's calculus is more about how do I feel about this shoe, this brand, this designer, this colorway, and less about, well, what is the broader market telling me this is worth in dollars? Uh, I think it just injects a little bit more of kind of the genuine passion for the item um, that's lost when you go kind of fully transactional with the traditional marketplace. This this is super unique because what you're des- you're describing to me sounds like a mixture of not only economics but like emotion, right? And and in a way, it's an even more efficient market than just purely what the price of something is. Because, uh, you know, I, I resonate with some of the things you were saying. Where I've won some sneaker raffles for for shoes that, in hindsight, like I don't, I'm not like super excited about because I just like kind of you know put a few like the r- different raffle like entries in. Uh, but to someone else, they would have like killed to have gotten that. So like if I were to put if, if that were to come up as part of a trade, whether I was the the buyer or the seller, uh, you know, people have different preferences that go beyond just monetary value. I might want maybe on the flip side of, of what you're talking about, Yeezys, maybe like Yeezys mean a lot to me. So I'd be willing to go so much further in a trade because that means so much to me. So it kind of touches on the sort of emotional and personal elements of collecting. And, you know, like at, at New Street, we see that across collectibles in general, right? Where, you know, you might really want like a, a basketball card or baseball card of a certain athlete, which is technically like less valuable on the market than another one. But to you, because you're a diehard collector of that athlete or team, uh, that is so much more meaningful. And I, I noticed, of course, you know, behind you, you've got not just sneakers, but some other like, you know, like Funko Pop, you got some other action figures. Uh, I see X. Oh, is that oh that X-Men? Is that the Asics X-Men Kith, Kith drop? You know it. Oh my gosh. Okay. Anyway, sorry. I, I got distracted for a second because that is legit. But um, I was going to say, like, do you plan to go beyond like sneakers and other collectibles? Because the dynamics you just described, like to me, I think that could also work for streetwear, right? Like if if I'm a diehard like Supreme collector and I'm trying to like finish this collection, I've got like, you know, shirts in every color except for blue, then I might be willing to go further in a trade uh, versus like what the market price might tell me on a StockX or whatever. Is that is that kind of, and maybe just in the broader question, where does this go further on? Because I think you could definitely expand to that. Yeah, um, great question. Um, you know, what I'd say starts with sort of one of my first principles when it comes to actually to life in general, but the business in particular, which is um, I think something that a lot of people get wrong is, you know, this idea of ruthless prioritization. So the short answer to your question is, you know, that's definitely a conversation we've had many times and it is for sure a part of our future, right? It's just a question of when does it make sense to do that? And, you know, my point of view is we still have a lot of work to do, you know, basically getting the product to our vision, but also serving the sneaker market. So, you know, my point of view is let's laser focus on this core market. You know, there's also an aspect of it, which it's, it's a market that we as founders understand the best. There's a reason we started with sneakers. You know, I think it's really important to have, you know, what I've heard called founder market fit, right? And so we want to have, you know, basically take every opportunity we can to make the most badass trading platform in a space that we know really, really well and have deep knowledge of culturally before we say, okay, now let's start expanding to these other categories, you know, where we're going to need to bring in some other people who are super passionate and knowledgeable about, 
you know, whether it's the Funko Pop dolls, whether it's sports cards, whether it's any other collectible. But, you know, I think the, the, the broader, you know, answer is, yeah, like when I joined Trade Block, that was one of the things that I found most fascinating. My background, you know, uh, I just love studying human behavior. Um, so I was a sociology major in college. You know, I, I took enough classes to minor in psychology, but never actually applied for the minor, which I guess was foolish. But yeah, I, I think, you know, there's nothing more interesting in this world to study than people. Um, and people in groups in particular, you know, are fascinating and how we operate and the things we gravitate to and the cultures we create. And something that I realized early on was like, okay, if you pluck three people out of a sneaker con, three people out of a comic con, and you know, three people from a stamp convention, those are going to be really, really different types of people. However, the fundamentals of how those communities work, how they engage with one another, how items pass from one person to the other, it's very, very similar, right? You have a relatively small group of people who's incredibly passionate about a certain thing you're not in that group, you're going to look at those people and think like, you guys are crazy. But that's part of what makes the group so tight knit is, hey, we all have this, you know, maybe unreasonable fascination with this item. So yeah, from day one, I was like, if we can make this work in sneakers, we can make it work in almost any collectible category. You know, we, we coined the term actually, this idea of variably valued goods, which is just kind of a highfalutin way of saying, hey, what is a sneaker worth? What is a card worth? What is a stamp worth? Well, it's a combination of what's the market value, but then who are you asking, right? If it's a shoe that my dad bought for me when I was a kid and he's since passed away, you know, how I view the value of that item is going to be super different than the person who randomly lucked up on five pairs and didn't even like the brand in the first place. And I think that is true across all of those collectible categories. So Short answer, um, it's definitely on the roadmap. Longer answer, uh, I couldn't tell you exactly why. Totally. Now, I really do hear the the passion, the origin of what sneakers means to you. And, you know, I'm sure everybody has a kind of story about, okay, this shoe means a lot to me, not just because of the price, but because of some sort of like connection I have. Maybe it is reminds me of like a family member, et cetera. I'm just curious, like, do you have your own sort of personal grails or sneakers that mean a lot to you, whether it's ones that are in your possession or ones that like you you aspire to get but don't have right now? And like, what were what were the factors, right? Maybe it wasn't just presumably just the price, but maybe because of uh, your fandom or personal connection to, uh, to that particular shoe. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, shout out to Tradeblock because I've gotten, you know, most of my grails oh, via, via nice. trading on Tradeblock, actually. Um, you know, I'll do a quick highlight of, of three. One is the, the Trophy Room 5's collaboration with Marcus Jordan's um, kind of, you know, company and store, the Trophy Room. Just a beautiful pair of sneakers. I remember when they first came out, just being like, man, this is such a unique take on the Jordan 5. The inspiration, you know, basically the, the shoe and uh, basically the colorway, the design, everything is modeled after the actual trophy room that was in Michael Jordan's house. And, you know, his son, Marcus Jordan, spent time in there growing up as a kid. And so I traded for a pair of those early on. Off-White Fives, the Mooslin pair, the gray pair. I just, when those first came out, I was like, this is one of the dopest sneakers I've ever seen. I think all the Off-White collection is pretty cool. People really love the Jordan ones. That's a classic silhouette. But in my opinion, of all of the Off-White Jordans, that Off-White 5 and that you know gray muslin color was just next level. So I traded for a pair of those. That took me 18 months and like consistent 
hunting, negotiating. It was a really difficult pair to secure, uh, but I finally did. And then also just the classic, you know, Chicago Jordan 1. And I'm a big, like, sort of older shoe classics guy. So ultimately, I'd love to have an original pair from 1985. But the next best thing is the first time they retroed. And so uh, I have a pair of 93, you know, Jordan 1 Chicago colorway that are actually still in really good, like, wearable condition. You know, older shoes, if you don't put them on your feet, they tend to get really brittle and crack. But these have been worn, you know, just often enough to be kind of nicely broken in, but with, you know, minimal kind of wear and tear. So those are three I've secured on the block. One that I'm still hunting for and that, you know, they kind of like dovetail into that idea of, you know, the, the story and kind of meaning behind sneakers. A pair of all black T-Mac 2s. Um, I don't know. The Hoopers out there will remember these from early 2000s. Um, but T-Mac had one of the hottest basketball shoes in the game. You know, they had this really dope kind of patent leather. I want to say swoosh. That's a bad way of describing it because it's a different brand. But sort of patent leather overlay that came from the outside of the, of the upper sole and kind of wrapped over the toe box in a really dope, unique way. And... You know, I remember it was seventh grade, was basically doing back to school shopping with my parents, was pretty dejected. It kind of just left the mall, hit every sneaker store. All of the shoes that I wanted were, you know, unsurprisingly outside of the price range. And so we were going to Marshall's basically to get, you know, some khaki pants and polos and stuff. And I was just like, well, let me go see what's on this, this sneaker rack, if you will. And, you know, I happened to see this pair of, of T-Max and they were like 30 bucks because it was Marshall's. And my parents were like, sounds great. Go for it. But it was the first time that I had a, a pair of basketball shoes that were sort of, one, cool to me, but also basically two, cool within the broader culture of things, right? So it was the first time I was excited to wear a pair of shoes to school and particularly to like basketball practice. And yeah, I mean, the amazing thing about shoes, you know, clothes are kind of like this too, but they can just imbue you with this crazy level of kind of self-confidence that, you know, oftentimes growing up, going through adolescence, like there's all of these insecurities that we have. And I just remember feeling like, you know, just feeling like the man walking to school with those T-Max on. So I played my whole seventh grade season in them, you know. Kept trying to play in them even as my feet got too big and my toes started bleeding in them. Um, and eventually oh I retired them. But, you know, since I started Trade Block, I've been trying to find a pair of those. They are ridiculously hard to find for whatever reason, at least in my size. So if anybody's got those all black, you know, T Mac 2s um, in a size 13 or 14, get at me. I, I feel like you'd have considering what trade block is seeing like happen on the platform, like really unique insights on preferences that may not be as obvious from like other platforms. Like for example, I know that like StockX does that culture index. I think it's what it's called where like every year they talk about like the top five, like fastest growing, like most traded like silhouettes or brands. And I think the last year on running was like the number one fastest growing new brand. Then I think it was mischief actually. And then Solomon, Solomon, I found like the most maybe obvious one out of those, but on, the on one kind of surprised me. And then the mischief one surprised me. Uh, then New Balance is, you know, pretty like considered like, I think it was the only one in StockX's top 10 for both fastest growing and best selling. Uh, so these kind of like insights are like, oh, this is where like the market is going. And I think there, there's a lot of talk from, from what I hear these days about, you know, maybe slightly, well, well one, like thinking about just dynamics between big brands, like is Nike 
having less uh, dominance than usual. Adidas obviously has had a lot of challenges due to Yeezy. There's a new like hotness and hype around some of these younger brands, um, even though they're not super young, but like I think about New Balance is probably the, the biggest example of that, maybe Solomon. Either both from a combination of what maybe you're seeing on the platform, about what's like surprising, what's trending, what's exciting, and maybe in your own sort of personal keeping in touch what's happening in the sneaker game. Like, what do you see as like interesting, exciting, surprising things that are trends about what is popular, what's not so popular, what do you think's growing, what do you think is waning in popularity? Yeah. Great question. I mean, I think, you know, uh, everything you hit on from that, uh, from the StockX report is, you know, a lot of what we're seeing as well. Obviously, when you think about sneakers, there's sort of, you know, a number of concentric circles, if you will, where, you know, where we're at today, a lot of our user base is sort of the, the diehard sneaker heads, right? And those folks are still going to be, you know, kind of heavily indexed on, you know, retro Jordans and Yeezys, you know, so that's, that's a pretty massive percentage of what we see on the platform and what we see in terms of trades. But we've definitely seen an uptick in sort of interest in, you know, let's call it the, the dad shoe trend. And I think, you know, my, my personal sort of analysis is people are, people are opting for comfort a lot more than they used to. Um, and basically saying, hey, how does this shoe feel on my feet? If it feels great, you know, I care less about the design slash I can be basically won over to the design because I like, you know, how good they feel. And then I see them on my feet for a week or two. And I'm like, you know what? I, my opinion has changed on these. So I think we're seeing a lot of that. You know, Nike and Jordan is, is still dominant. You know, yes, definitely a little less dominant than, than they were a few years ago. I think the thing that, you know, I've found interesting is a lot of these other brands, you know, I think New Balance is a great example are realizing, okay, you know, culture drives commerce and are kind of taking, you know, a lot of plays that uh, Nike and Adidas kind of pioneered in terms of like, let's bring in a cultural icon and make them a, you know, kind of dedicated collaborative partner. I think a lot of other brands are, are taking that play, but, you know, really taking it to the next level. I think it's tough if you are sort of the Goliath on the block, Nike or Jordan, you know, I understand why they sometimes are less willing to give up, you know, creative control or to offer things like a cut of actual sales on your shoe. You know, those are just those are things that were never part of their business model. Right. And they're like, hey, we, we got to where we are by moving in a certain way. Um, so why would we change that now? But I do think it's opened up opportunities for a lot of these other brands who are like, Hey, you're an incredible creative, you know, you're a cultural force in this space and people are going to pay attention to anything you put out. So I think New Balance has done a good job of saying, look, we're going to bring those people in and we're going to kind of, you know, hand you the reins and say, go crazy. And, you know, we're going to support your vision kind of, you know, all the way to whatever you want that to be. Certainly, we're going to have our other stuff running parallel to that. And, you know, so we can kind of maintain anything that we feel is like core brands, you know, approach, etc. But I think that, you know, allowing those creatives to kind of go wild also helps widen the aperture for the brand more broadly, right? And, you know, shows them that stuff that they never would have thought would be successful can be incredibly successful. You know, I think I'll give a shout out. This is insane for me to say this. And 10 years ago, people would have been like, you're crazy. I think. Crocs has been one of the most innovative brands in space. And I think Crocs probably doesn't get nearly enough credit for 
opening up this whole new category of clogs. Like Crocs used to be what, you know, our parents or whatever we would wear like as a house shoe on the weekend, but like, oh man, I can't be caught dead actually out, you know, where I might be photographed in a pair of Crocs. And I think they were like, okay, that's the perception. Let's do things that are creative and different. Um, Let's work with different collaborators, et cetera. And then, you know, I think Yeezy saw that and was like, oh, hey, let's, you know, try to create a, you know, elevated design version of the Croc and their clogs have gone crazy. And so, you know, you see Salehi Bembry making a lot of dope kind of Croc type of shoes, et cetera. So, you know, again, I think those sorts of opportunities, they, they don't emerge unless you are kind of willing to take pretty big risks with your brand. So I think the... You know, what I'll be curious to see is Nike Jordan are what they are today because of the the willingness they had to take risks with their brand back in the day, right? And those risks led to some incredibly, incredibly strong and valuable sort of IP for them, you know, um, not only in terms of actual silhouettes, like all of the retro Jordans, but in terms of how the brand was perceived as really, you know, always pushing the needle on innovation, on you know, design, performance, etc. So I think what will be interesting to me is, you know, are, are they able to continue to maintain that even when they're a Goliath with a really lucrative business model where as compared to someone else who's trying to take market share, there's less incentive to be kind of crazy and take risks. But over time, I think if you're not willing to do that, that's what opens up this opportunity for other brands to come up. But I think it's a great thing, man. I think the culture is so much healthier with a more kind of diverse mix of interests. And I think it's also bringing a lot of new types of people into the space who you otherwise wouldn't have seen at these events before. And just in general, I think you know diversity is what, what makes us great as yeah, as a species. So I'm here for it. Totally. Well, well, I think, I mean, there's so many topics within the broader shoe sneaker world that we could we could talk about. I mean, some things that come to mind, maybe let's we'll keep it for another episode. But uh, like the with, with a company full of co-founders who used to work at like Finish Line or Foot Locker, like, you know, what does retail mean today? You know, and I think about other things like how has the resale market changed since like 10 years ago? Uh, I think about things like, you know, all meant like a billion other trends like with regards to things like sustainability, with regards to things like even like digital sneakers, things like that. Probably don't have time to cover all of them, but we'll say that for another episode. But maybe out of all the, the billion trends or topics that are in the sneaker space, are, is there one maybe that you'd kind of double down on that you're particularly interested in or like keeping up with or following that maybe we haven't discussed that you'd say is like closer to what you're interested in in terms of what is shaping the industry? Yeah, I wish I could say this in a, in a way that sounds less um, contrived, but I think it's what I said earlier, which is, is like culture-driven commerce. What's happened over the past you know, decade or two, but really in the last five, 10 years is as you know, social media and kind of digital groups that become more and more a bigger part of our lives, they drive a lot more of our tastes and a lot more of our trends. So I think that the old model of, hey, we can make something that's going to be sort of really broadly, you know, desired is, is slowly dying away. And so I think the, the brands and the companies that are able to say, okay, cool, there is, you know, maybe half a dozen or a dozen similar, but actually very unique subsets of audiences within this culture. And we're going to figure out a way to not, not only serve each of them kind of uniquely, um, but build relationships with them directly. Like 
those are the brands that are going to win. So I think companies that are leaning into that were sort of saying, hey, who are the cultural icons of the time? And let's bring them in and again, kind of give them the creative license to, to push us forward in ways that make us uncomfortable. Yeah, I think those are the folks that are going to win. And that's that's a big part of our strategy, right? Is cool, commerce is one thing, but at the end of the day, the vast majority of time you spend as a sneakerhead is the time in between purchases. And so we sort of said, well, what are you doing in between purchases? You're connecting with other collectors, you're viewing people's collections, you're considering different deals you might do, etc. So we were very big on, hey, our experience should give you the ability to secure sneakers, but it should also be a place where you want to spend time, even when you have no plans, you know, in the moment to go acquire a new sneaker. So um, that's the bet that we're making. And, you know, in a couple of years, I guess we'll find out if it was a good bet or not. Well, Bimo, I'd love to keep chatting about everything, but I know we're running out of time. So I'm going to ask like the same, like two questions to conclude. The first being, you know, where can people find you on social media? Where can people find Trade Blog? And then, and then the last, que- last question, which I'd uh, love to get your answer on this. Like, what's just one last message you'd like to leave with the audience? Yeah, um, great question. So you can find me on Trade Block. Uh, my handle is Beams, B-E-E-M-S. That's my nickname. And if you got those T-Max, send me an offer. I exist on social media, but I deleted all my social media apps like a year ago. And it's probably the best thing I've ever done. So you can find me if you look, but I uh, probably won't engage much outside of maybe maybe LinkedIn. So hit me up on LinkedIn for some professional conversations. Outside of that, oh, you can find TradeBlock in either App Store or on Android, uh, as well as iOS, so Apple Store or Google Play. What do I want to leave everyone with? Man, this is completely unrelated to TradeBlock, but, you know, to me, there are there are three kind of core principles that I think make us great people. And I think more broadly, you know, I look at part of the mission of my life to, to increase these three things. So, you know, the first is critical thinking, right? The ability to, you know, separate fact from fiction and to go um, establish truth for yourself, I think is extremely critical at times like this, when there's just so much information flying from all directions. And it's hard to say who's credible and who's not. The second is introspection, which is, you know, really learning to understand yourself. I'd say a lot of the work I've done, you know, in terms of meditation, mindfulness, etc., and really just sitting quietly with myself, you know, journaling, trying to unpack what am I feeling? Where are those feelings coming from? Why do I love this thing? Why do I not like this thing? I think the better we understand ourselves, you know, the happier we are and the better we are in terms of how we contribute to the communities around us. Um, And then the last is empathy. You know, I think it's maybe the most important thing in the world is our ability to understand, you know, other people and be able to really put ourselves in their shoes and, and think about what it, what it would be like to be experiencing the things that, that they're experiencing. You know, I think the, the reverse of what I was talking about with digital groups is we're now increasingly all in echo chambers where we're surrounded by people who actually are extremely similar to us and how they think. So I think it's crucial that we really push ourselves to step outside of those comfort zones to meet people who are totally different than us, um, but to also genuinely want to understand their experiences and kind of what animates their life. So that's what I'll leave you guys with. Critical thinking, introspection, and empathy. Uh, and I think if we can all grow those three attributes, the world will be a better place for it. Emo, thank you so much, man. Really loved our conversation. Thank you for listening to the New Street X podcast. You can learn more about the guest in the show notes and learn more about New Street at newstreet.com. Please make sure to like, follow, subscribe across YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and more. Thank you so much. See you next time.